This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear from a pastoral couple in Weld County that has witnessed the impacts of COVID-19 firsthand. And following Wednesday's insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building by a pro-Trump mob, we'll hear how state lawmakers are reacting and take a look at how this attack could influence the upcoming legislative session. Those stories and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Americans are still processing the recent violence at the nation's capital. The scenes of a pro-Trump mob forcing their way into the House and Senate chambers also has Colorado's state lawmakers concerned and talking about the safety of their Capitol building. KUNC's Scott Franz covers state government for KUNC and is with us now to talk about how this week's events might affect next week's start to Colorado's legislative session. Hey, Scott. Hey, Henry. How are lawmakers here reacting to what happened? Well, many of them are saying they were shocked and saddened by what they saw happening in D.C. I talked to Steve Finberg. He leads the Democratic majority in the state Senate. And I asked him if he feels safe going back to work next week. There's no question everybody is on edge right now. It's really difficult to watch the scene from yesterday unfold and not think about it happening in in the Colorado legislature uh, or, you know, putting myself in the position of Jason Crow or Jonah Goose or others that are that are there. Uh, and, and it's incredibly sad and it's a little scary. Um, I, you know, I, I am confident that we are going to be safe uh, next week when we reconvene. But I think it's a sad day that um, public servants are under attack for carrying out the democratic process. Fenberg also told me that lawmakers are talking about increasing security in Denver uh, because of what happened. He said it really elevated uh, the sense of urgency about securing the building, um, but he wouldn't go into specifics citing the sensitive nature of security plans. Well, Colorado's Capitol building was targeted during protests last summer. You've also reported that even before this week's events, lawmakers were considering new security measures to fortify the building. Bring us up to speed on what's going on. Well, there was more than a million dollars in damage done to the building, things like broken windows, graffiti. uh, And in the wake of all that damage, a state agency came up with a long list of recommendations, uh, including a new permanent perimeter fence, bullet-resistant glass, new security cameras. Uh, Lawmakers have spent recent weeks meeting behind closed doors uh, to consider this list of things, so it's hard to tell right now what's actually been approved. Um, So I asked Finberg about the status of this plan, uh, and he says lawmakers are moving ahead with a lot of the recommendations. What I can say is we're following the recommendations of uh, Homeland Security, State Patrol, and... um, and others that are really the experts on security and protecting First Amendment rights. And I don't believe we are moving forward on a perimeter fence that would keep people out um, from the, the Capitol grounds. Um, but there are upgrades that uh, that folks feel like is necessary and that um, is not going to probably look or feel that different to the common person. But there are, you know, areas where um, someone who wants to do harm can easily hide, for instance, or there are areas that are maybe slightly out of shot of a of a camera or it's dark at night. And those are the types of upgrades that we're making. 
He added it's it's kind of a delicate situation because lawmakers want to strike a balance uh, between increasing the security of the building and keeping people safe without making it feel like the Capitol is closed off or inaccessible to the public. We rely on people to show up to the Capitol and be able to kind of knock on a legislator's door and have a conversation about policy or an issue they care about. That's pretty core to how our state legislature works. And it's important that we preserve that. Scott, lawmakers return next Wednesday, as we mentioned, but I'm imagining this session is going to be very different. What can you tell us about what next week will look like? Well, because of the coronavirus pandemic, lawmakers don't want to bring crowds into the Capitol building. Uh, So they're planning to have what I'm calling a, a soft opening of the session. That means there's not going to be any of the pomp and circumstance of opening day, no long speeches. The state of the state isn't expected to happen from Governor Polis. Uh, Instead, they're planning to swear people in and meet for just a short time to take care of some business, but then taking a month-long pause to let people get vaccinated and and hopefully let the, the pandemic get better before kicking into high gear sometime in February. All right. Well, that's KUNC's Scott Franz. He covers the state capitol for us. Scott, thanks for the update. My pleasure. State health officials are continuing their focus on getting those COVID-19 vaccines distributed as efficiently as possible. Governor Jared Polis addressed the rollout in his first press conference of the new year on Wednesday. There's been so much loss, health, jobs, social, emotional. And that's why it's critical to end this pandemic as quickly as possible. The vaccine is the key to doing that. And our top priority for our administration is to make sure that we have the infrastructure in place to ensure that healthcare workers and, of course, Coloradans age 70 and up can get vaccinated as quickly as possible. Polis noted that in Colorado, people 70 and older represent 78 percent of COVID deaths and more than 30 percent of hospitalizations to date. So prioritizing this group will have a major impact. Polis acknowledged the vaccine rollout had seen some confusion, with some older residents complaining about a lack of access. He encouraged those age 70 and older to contact their health care providers for more information about when the vaccine will become available to them. He also provided a basic timeline for distribution to other groups, revealing that teachers and other essential workers may need to wait until March. The COVID-19 pandemic has been especially hard on Latinos in Weld County. They make up 30 percent of the county's population, yet account for 40 percent of the cases. County leaders have not enforced state health guidelines. Instead, they've encouraged personal responsibility to curb the spread of the virus. As KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, that's been difficult for one pastoral couple as they try to keep their congregants safe. It's kind of dark inside the auditorium, but the stage is backlit by purple fluorescent lights shaped like diamonds. And the band is jamming. This is Mosaic Church. Every Sunday, there are three services, two in English and one in Spanish. 
Angel Flores is Mosaic's lead pastor, and today his message is about the spirit of giving. We're going to talk about generosity. <laughs> the bald, stocky pastor wears a V-neck sweater and slacks. Angel is 48 years old, but looks about a decade younger. And as he peppers his message with a funny anecdote about his bad singing voice, his warm smile grows. But if I sing, you won't worship God. I promise you that. Angel and his wife, Diane, are Mexican-American. And they founded Mosaic 13 years ago with a group of friends in their kitchen. We felt like there was a, 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 an opportunity to, to create a church for unchurched people. Our, our original tagline was a church for people who don't really like church. And so we strive to make Mosaic as welcoming, unweird as we can, where you can, invite, you can inv invite your friends. Mosaic is an evangelical church. It's open to anyone and has lots of young, working-class families. A year ago, nearly 700 people would come worship on any given Sunday. Then COVID-19 started, and congregants who were first responders or work at meatpacking plants started getting sick. An angel started getting calls like this. We got a, a call from a lady in our church who said, Pastor, they're about to intubate me. And so, I mean, that was, that, it got real quick. And as her pastor, I'm telling her, like, look, you're, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. But real talk, you might be meeting the Lord soon. So let's, you know, let me pray with you. During that first wave of coronavirus, about two dozen congregants got COVID and recovered, including the woman who called Angel as she was being intubated. As a precaution, the church shut its doors in mid-March and moved online. In April, Weld County had one of the highest numbers of coronavirus cases and deaths per capita in the state. Since then, the rates have dropped. But one statistic has remained constant. Hispanics and Latinos have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. I think that takes a mental toll on the community. Everybody's stressed out. Everybody's tired of this. Everybody's worn out. While the church has been doing its best to hold on, the couple also had to navigate local politics. Throughout the pandemic, Weld County commissioners have not enforced the state's COVID-19 regulations. They've encouraged personal responsibility instead, allowing residents to decide which public health orders to follow. So over the summer, when Angel and Diane decided to restart in-person services, they were determined to do it safely. I'm called to love other people and so love our community in the way that we love them the best is to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep them safe and to do our part. But the couple wasn't sure what they should actually do. And since Weld County did not have any specific policies in place, they chose to follow Larimer County's guidelines. They removed every other row of chairs and asked people to leave space between families. We asked everybody to wear masks. We bought gallons of hand sanitizer. I mean, so honestly, nobody really knows what we're doing. We're just trying to figure, manage this the best we can. In mid-June, Mosaic began worshiping again in person at a greatly reduced capacity. Meanwhile, church members kept contracting the disease. An angel had three family members pass away from COVID in one week. Then this happened. So I tested positive for COVID. Angel broke the news in a video message he posted on Facebook. I'm so bummed out to, to, to tell you this is happening to me because the last thing I wanted to do is bring this into my house and to bring this into my church family. Diane also tested positive, along with several staff members. So in November, the church had to close again for two weeks. Angel urged the congregation to remain diligent and stay safe. If you're feeling sick, like, get tested. This is serious. 
this whole COVID thing is not a joke. Uh, I don't care, you know, what anybody says about the politics behind it or any of that ridiculous stuff. Um, it's it's real and it's it's terrible. And I'm thankful that I've seemed to have gotten a mild case of it. Today, Mosaic is open. The church continues to stream services online and use Facebook for announcements, prayer, and fellowship, like this video recorded at their house. Hey, everybody. Hi. It's Thursday night. We're here in our backyard. Online and in person, this is the new normal. <laughs> and even though their delivery methods have changed, Angel and Diane are going to keep doing what they do, connecting people to Jesus and helping them grow their faith. I think our main focus during COVID is to provide hope for people, remind them that this will pass. Um, this is not forever. There's still hope. Once we get through this, I think we're going to appreciate, I know I'm going to appreciate worshiping with other people more than I ever have. Mm -hmm. Gathering with family, hugging people, shaking hands. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. You can find other stories in our series on the impacts of COVID-19 among Weld County's Latino communities, as well as versions of the stories in Spanish at our website, KUNC.org. Next week on the show, we'll have more on the short supply of bilingual contact tracers and the challenges around translating public health messaging from English to Spanish. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. With the passage of a new federal stimulus package and some state bills, there's millions of dollars in pandemic relief money floating around out there. Now it's just a matter of getting that money into the hands of the small businesses and unemployed people who need it, something which may take some time. Tamara Chung is a reporter with the Colorado Sun, where she publishes the weekly What's Working column and newsletter, an economic survival guide for those who are struggling in the pandemic. She joins us now to talk through the latest federal and state aid. Tamara, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thanks, Henry. So when we last spoke, there was a lot of concern about whether a federal relief bill would be passed before benefits ended at the end of the year, potentially leading to thousands of people starting the new year without income. A package did pass before the year ended, but Coloradans still can't get the new unemployment payments. What's going on with that? Well, several things are happening. So the new federal plan is going to extend benefits for a lot of people. You know, all the folks who've used up their benefits already, it's going to extend it for 11 weeks. And in addition to that, they're going to get paid an extra $300 a week for 11 weeks. Now, the problem is this isn't happening yet, even though benefits for many people ended on December 26. And that's because there's actually a process that the state labor department must take in order to pay those new funds and new benefits out. And part of that was they were waiting on guidance from the U.S. Department of Labor. And then they had to take that guidance and reprogram their system so that they could pay, you know, the gig workers and people who've used up all their unemployment those 11 extra weeks. Well, you mentioned the unemployment system there, and I know that there's kind of a couple moving pieces to that story going on this week. Tell us what else is going on. So as I just mentioned, you know, the state has to reprogram its computer system. But coincidentally, the state is also upgrading that computer system. They have been using technology from the 70s, basically, software from the 70s called COBOL. And 
This upgrade has been years in the making. They were actually going to roll it out last spring, and that would modernize their whole system, make it faster, allow people to file for benefits every week. But because of the pandemic, they put that on hold. So that's why people who have been on regular unemployment have been using this old, antiquated technology. Whereas people who are gig workers and receiving the federal benefits from the CARES Act, they were actually moved to the new system. The state finally decided to move ahead with the upgrade during this transition, and everything went offline Tuesday night. It will take five days for the transition to happen. And on Sunday, everyone is expected to be able to log back into their accounts and make sure they're on the new system. This means that everybody will now be on the new computer system that will make it easier for the Department of Labor to match up accounts of people who were on regular unemployment and moved to pandemic unemployment or extended employment. Well, hopefully it goes smoothly. There is a contingency plan because the idea is that everyone can be on the same system starting Sunday. But if that doesn't work out, the state has said, well, they have the backup. So everyone would just go back to the old system or, you know, they other things could happen. So there are some contingency plans, but they hope that everything will start working again on Sunday. Another thing I wanted to ask about was a federal unemployment program known as State Extended Benefits. This is for people who have exhausted all of their other unemployment options. The state lost access to that program last month because it was using an incomplete measure of the number of people on unemployment. Do you know where we stand now in terms of getting back into that program? Yes, Because people who were kicked out of that program, and at the time it was at least 16,000 people, they stopped receiving benefits in December because the state was using a different calculation for unemployment. So early in December, the state legislature tackled this problem and discovered there was a, a second calculation the state could have taken and adopted that. But there were still some issues with the federal law. So Senator Michael Bennett, on the urging of a lot of people on unemployment, actually got this fed into the new stimulus package. And when that new COVID relief plan passed, it allowed Colorado to return to that program. So there is hope that people who lost access at the end of November, they will get some of those benefits retroactively. Now, the one issue here is that second calculation that we adopted We actually triggered off again because our November unemployment rate was below 6.5%. It's not quite determined yet in the Department of Labor as to when people will be paid, but likely we will have to take a break again, another 13 weeks of waiting, and then we can return to that extended 13 weeks of payments. I also wanted to ask about small businesses. We've been talking about a lot of state and federal aid. What options are available in terms of relief for them? Well, as part of the new federal plan, Congress passed a new Paycheck Protection Loan Program. This one is going to be funded with $284 billion. And again, it's aimed at small businesses who can't operate at 100% and need to pay their employees. The changes from the last year's program is the business can only be up to 300 employees, which seems like a lot for a small business, but that's just an SBA, a small business administration definition. The business also must show that their revenues dropped 25% in 2020 from the prior year. 
And as long as that happens, they can apply for this loan, use at least 60% to pay employees. And if they do, the loan will be forgiven. Tamara Chung is with the Colorado Sun. You can find a link to her latest What's Working column on our website, KUNC.org. Tamara, thanks again for joining us. Thanks again, Henry. There is no question that 2020 was a challenging year for Colorado businesses. We're talking now with Ken Amundsen, managing editor of BizWest, for more on how the pandemic, as well as protests and a grueling presidential election, played out in the state's economy. Ken, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Let's briefly tick through some of the business news from 2020. What were some of the biggest stories? Or, or do we just need to assume the pandemic was the only story? Well, uh, the pandemic certainly colored virtually everything that we saw during the last year, but it didn't influence uh, quite everything. Uh, There were a number of things that did happen during the last year that I think are noteworthy, worth talking about. While we saw in 2018 and 19 considerable number of banking mergers and that sort of thing, there wasn't a whole lot in 2020, but there was one fairly large one, uh, PNC Financial Services Group uh, purchasing BBVA for $11.5 billion. Otherwise, in the banking industry, there was a much um, interest in the PPP loans, and uh, you know, Colorado banks issued uh, 7.3 billion in PPP loans to help sustain businesses. So, obviously, a, an economic impact there. The biotech sector definitely had some things happening uh, this past year, and of course, biotech was where it was at when it came to developing COVID uh, vaccines and that sort of thing. So there was a lot of interest in that particular sector. Um, Somalogic, for example, a Boulder company had uh, had the largest raiser of, of venture capital uh, within that industry or within any industry during the uh, during the year, bringing in about uh, 214 million in cash. Archer DX was bought out by a company, and um, and Biodesix, also a Boulder company, executed its IPO during the last year. So a lot of activity in the biotech sector. Cannabis also saw quite a bit of stuff happening, and uh, uh, I guess this happened really kind of maybe despite the pandemic. I think it probably would have happened anyway. Uh, Charlotte's Web acquired a company called Abacus Health Products, and that was the uh, $68 million deal, making it, um, it was the largest deal in the cannabis industry in the United States last year. I'm wondering how Colorado, uh, you know, stacks up to other states. How did businesses here and the overall economy compare with the rest of the country? Well, as we've seen over, you know, the last many years, uh, at least through the last two, three downturns in the economy, Colorado has done better than the rest of the nation. And of course, during the pandemic here, the the recession that w- that occurred because of the pandemic, it also has done better than the rest of the nation, but not significantly better. I, guess, I would say marginally better. And that's kind of reflected in the confidence index. And as you might be aware, University of Colorado does a confidence index every quarter, and the most recent one just came out this week indicating that uh, businesses, at least in the first quarter, are still a little bit pessimistic. The way that rating works for the confidence index, 50 is considered neutral, and the confidence index for the first quarter was 47.9. So 
slightly pessimistic. I think it's pretty safe to say that 2020 was a tough year for businesses. How can we put the year into some kind of perspective? I guess I would look back a year when the um, economists were giving us their predictions for the year. And they said everything was going to be fine. You know, it was going to be a wonderful year unless there is a black swan event. And uh, I always like that term, black swan event, because it, it sounds so ominous. And, of course, that is exactly what happened. We, we hit the black swan event because of the, of the pandemic. So, you know, we're, we're in uncharted territory. Uh, I was talking to an economist the other day who indicated that uh, we really don't know um, how this is going to come out because we've never experienced this, experienced it in most of our lifetimes. There are a few people who are around during the 1918 pandemic, but uh, most of us were not. And we weren't tracking things in 1918 like we do now. So we don't exactly know what the metrics are supposed to be and you know what will happen. So there's that uncertainty as we enter the new year. And, uh, um, and I guess we'll all learn <laughs> with one another as we go forward. Very true. Ken Amundsen is Managing Editor for BizWest. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to do it anytime. That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, we'll have more on the challenges of translating public health messaging. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our show is produced with help from Adam Reyes and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.